0: We're going to be in Philippians 3, 2 to 17, so if you want to open it up in your Bible or in your Bible app or whatever it might be. Also, I want to mention this. There's no childcare, as you guys know. So some of you guys are past the stage of children. If you see a family struggling, just go get up and help. You know, sit at the table, offer some assistance because it's tough. It's tough when you're trying to pay attention, especially if you're the type of person who can color and listen at the same time. Not everybody can do that. But if you can, feel free to help people because this is our family, and it goes a long way when someone's helping you. And so just if you see someone struggling, don't be shy and go over and ask if you can help sit at the table with them. We're gonna be talking about parenting, and it's fitting that Breton announced for family dedication because, you know, one of the lines he said there was, covenanting before one another to raise each other in the Lord, and that's what, raise your children in the Lord, and that was what this sermon was uh, supposed to be about, you know, you think about parenting, and for those of you who are parents, or parents-to-be, or you want to be parents, you realize there's lots of different views on parenting, I don't know if you were aware of that, um, if you weren't aware of it, wait till you have a kid and then you'll be aware of it really quickly. You know, there's free range parenting. There's the never say no approach. Then there, a couple years ago, like tiger moms, that was real popular, tiger mom, right? <laughs> tiger mom, that's, I think tiger mom is like out of style now. I read an article a week or two ago, it's now chicken moms are the thing. I, I couldn't really tell the difference between a tiger mom and a chicken mom. Except I said to Gina, I saw a sign the other day, and I was like, oh, man, that sign might be a proverb in the Bible. And it said, motherhood is like being pecked to death by chickens. (laughs) So maybe that's what they mean by chicken mom? I'm not really sure. No, I mean, chicken mom is like helicopter parenting to the extreme, like your child is hyper-managed, and they know when they're doing this, and when they're doing that, and then they go for violin practice and math practice, and they get home at 10 p.m., and they commence relaxation, you know? And then there's absent parenting. Like, that's actually an option. Not a good option, but it is an option. Absent parenting, just hoping your kids figure it out. And there's vicarious, vicarious parenting, which we've all seen on the side of the soccer field. But the question that everybody's wrestling with, and you know, the truth is, all of those means, with the exception of absent parenting, all right, with the exception of absent parenting, each of those parenting perspectives all begin from a desire to do what's best for your kid, all right? So some of you guys, when I said chicken parenting, you're like, (laughs) chicken, you know, that's fine. You can have your opinion, but you have to agree with the reality that parents who choose that route of parenting They're doing it because they're trying to do what's best for their child. And parents who choose the exact opposite are doing it because they think it's what's best for their child. And that's what all of us are trying to figure out. And so the question that I wrestled with all week long is what is the best thing that you can do for your kids? What is the best thing that you can pass on to your kids? That was really what I wrestled with all week long. And... and um. So we're going to be in Philippians 3, and I am actually preaching from the NET translation, the Net Bible translation. Um, and so if you read your ESV and it doesn't sound right, that's why. Those should be pretty similar. Paul writes, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. I put in brackets there before circumcision, we are the true circumcision. That's what Paul is implying. We are the true circumcision, namely the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, exult in Christ Jesus, and do not rely on human credentials, though mine too are significant. Now, in this section of scripture, Paul is writing to warn the church in Philippi about those who would boast in their ethnic heritage, their religious credentials, or their impressive accomplishments and resume in order to earn favor or prove favor that they have with God. In other words, Paul is saying, beware of people who come to you and they talk about how they have their act together and then they give you the resume to prove that they have their act together, all right? And what he's explaining here is that although their list, their resume of teachers, you know, where they graduated from, the fact that they've been, you know, praying since they could walk, all that kind of stuff, although that may be impressive, they aren't the true circumcision. And And he's using that kind of in quotes, meaning true believers true followers of God. And so we realize that there's two different people in this passage. There's the true circumcision, which are the true followers of God, and then there's the dogs, the evil workers, those who mutilate the flesh, who are people who appear religious, and they appear like they have some semblance of Christianity or Judaism or anything But as Paul would say in Colossians, these things have the appearance of godliness, but they have no power in curbing the appetite of the flesh. But they look godly. They look the part. But he says that's not the true circumcision. He actually uses three things here to describe the true circumcision who are true believers, and he says, one, they worship by the Spirit of God. This is what Jesus said, that one day the com- day would come when his people would worship him by Spirit and truth. And so when he says they're going to worship by the true Spirit of God, what he means is that the Holy Spirit has made them a new creation, and from that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that being made new, now they are able to connect Spirit to Spirit with God the Father because they've been cleansed the Holy Spirit lives inside them as a purified vessel and so they can worship the spirit of God the true circumcision can worship the spirit of God by the spirit of God because they're indwelt with the spirit of God. Did you follow that? All right, the second thing is this. The true circumcision can exalt in Christ. What does that mean? Now, you have to remember that there were Jews who believed in God, but they didn't exalt in Christ because Christ is the word that means Messiah, anointed one. It wasn't Jesus's last name. And so what he's saying is we can exalt in Christ Jesus. In other words, we can acknowledge that Jesus is the king and that the Messiah, he's the one that the Messiah promised through the Old Testament and that there is no other for whom they should wait. Jesus is the one they were waiting for. He is the one who has arrived. He is the one who can save them. And so they exult in Jesus Christ. They exalt Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah that they were waiting for. That's the second thing. The third thing is this. They don't rely on human credentials. In other words, they have come to the end of their rope and they no longer rely on their own abilities to try and impress or earn favor with God. These are all symptoms, factors, manifestations of the true circumcision. Now, as this relates to parenting or making disciples, because I said these things are literally identical, this is a crucial text. And I'll tell you why it's a crucial text. It's a crucial text, although the word parenting is not in it at all. It's a crucial text because our inclination, your propensity, your wagon ruts, what will you will always return to if you do not stay hyper-aware, your propensity in making disciples and in parenting is to make sure that people have skills. That's, that's going to be your... Your wagon rut approach, your wagon rut approach to discipling your kids, to discipling other people is make sure they have skills, make sure they have knowledge, make sure they have heritage, make sure they have credentials, make sure they have experiences, make sure they have accomplishments, and indeed, these accomplishments may make them look like spiritual people, even hyper-spiritual people. They may look successful but they may not ever actually focus on what truly matters. But that's our propensity as people because we want to try to climb the ladder but the ladder doesn't go anywhere and we can never reach the top. What does this look like? It looks like those um, interjections of shock that we say, I can't believe it, we went to church every week, we did this, everything. He didn't walk with Jesus. But her dad was a pastor They went to youth group. I saw them accept Jesus at camp. They read their Bible all the time, and they knew apologetics, right? These are the types of things that people say when we are impressed with credentials and we're impressed with accomplishments, and we look at someone like Ravi Zacharias, and I'm not making any judgment on the man's soul because I don't know the judgment of the man's soul, but we're impressed with his intellect and have no idea what's going on behind the curtain, We are a people impressed with credentials. And indeed, these things may be impressive, but Paul makes it clear here and in other passages that they have no power to what? Save. They have no power to save. this is why Paul continues. He says, look, if someone thinks that he has good reason to put confidence in human credentials and confidence in the flesh, he says, look, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In other words, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, nobody was better at being good than Paul, as Judaism defined good. In my zeal, not only was he a man who followed the law, who knew the law, who taught the law, not only did his parents look the part and his siblings looked the part and he looked the part, But beyond all that, he was zealous. And you can have people who know everything, can do everything, can knock it out of the park, but they don't have passion and zeal. Paul was zealous, so zealous that he strove to persecute the church. He says, according to the righteousness stipulated in the law, in other words, according to the righteousness that the law says you can have, I was blameless, blameless. But these assets, these boxes on my checklist, these things on my resume, I have come to regard as liabilities, hindrances, hurdles, things that you think they're going to help you, but they actually hurt you because of Christ. Verse 8, more than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Listen, Paul, the Apostle Paul, this terrorist turned Christian, this do-gooder turned someone who looked rotten in the eyes of Pharisees and religious leaders. Paul had extensive extensive credentials. Hear me, parents. He had the kind of credentials that any parent would be proud of. Paul was the kind of kid you mention in your Christmas newsletter while strategically leaving out your other child, okay? And we laugh at that, but that's true, you know? Jim Gaffigan jokes about that, being Jesus' brother and getting the family newsletter. As you know, Jesus is the Lord and Savior. James is also doing well, finishing up his associates at Bethlehem Community College but we're very proud of Jesus. (laughs) Think about Paul. While other men were getting married, we know Paul was unmarried. While other men were getting married or preparing for marriage, Paul was going to theology school at the feet of Gamaliel to prepare for a life devoted to God. While others were talking about Jesus' followers and talking about Jesus, and they were complaining about them around the kitchen table, Paul actually did something about it, and he got up, he got a letter, and he chased them to death and he had them stoned, and he had them imprisoned. Paul was a man who didn't just talk about issues, he actually dealt with issues. And as far as religion was concerned, Paul was committed, more committed than you can imagine. He was a zealot. He was devoted. You could even say he was an extremist. Now, human credentials may be impressive, but they can only take you so far. And that's exactly what Paul found out. And that's why he writes human credentials can become liability. So this is, the, this is the reality. That's a little loud. This is the reality, guys. Your impressive resume, your extensive knowledge, all of these things can become hurtful. And this is why they can become hurtful. So you've been a deacon at your church forever. Your family's been committed to that church forever. You've given so much money. This is why that stuff can actually be hurtful instead of beneficial because you falsely start to believe that you are achieving what you can never fully become. Did you follow what I just said? The problem with resumes and lists of success is that you falsely begin to believe that you can work to become what you can never become in the flesh. And so you say, I manage my money well, they don't manage their money well. What's the wrong with that idiot? What's wrong with them? I love to study the Bible. They don't even want to read the Bible. And you start being puffed up by your own abilities and your own capacities and your own credentials, but you conveniently overlook all of the things you naturally stink at. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? This is where Paul was living his life before Jesus blinded him on the road to Damascus. He blinded him so he could actually see. He thought God would be impressed with his faithfulness, with his religiosity. And this is where so many children grow up. They grow up in religious homes. They grow up being committed to church. They grow up being committed to the temple or to mosque. They grow up being committed to good behavior, committed to morals and ethics, to committed to conservative politics. And none of these things are necessarily bad. They may even be good but they aren't good enough to save your soul. You see, there was a time when people tried to build a really tall tower to reach God. They thought he'd be impressed with their efforts and their abilities, and God didn't think it was impressive. He actually thought it was offensive. Matter of fact, he had to come down to look at it because even their best efforts were minimal at best. The point is this. You might be the best jumper in the world, but you're not going to jump to the moon, okay? Though it's very impressive that you can jump higher than I can. An impressive resume, although good, just gives you the false impression that you have your act together. And here is the truth. You are far worse than you realize. You're far worse than you realize. See, Paul thought he was on the right track but his religion would never be enough because he wasn't just sin sick in need of a software update. He was spiritually dead, and so are you without Christ. See, on the contrary, an enormous checklist or a resume can actually be helpful because it reveals to you just how far short you actually fall despite your best efforts. And what do I mean by that? Um, We're doing a, a sermon series on parenting, I could have, for my sermon series, give you a list of all the things you should be doing as a parent. How you should be getting up at 4 a.m. to labor in prayer over your parents and actually or your kids. And actually you should probably start a prayer journal for each child so that when they turn 18, you can give them this journal, and it has all the prayers you've prayed since the time they were born and you're going to catechize them, and you're going to make sure that they go on mission trips so they can see poverty in a real visceral way. And we could just talk about all of the things you should do. And maybe some of you are awesome at adulting, right? And you're going to be great, and you have Pepper Potts as your administrative assistant, and she's going to make sure that you actually follow through on that massive soul-crushing list. But for the rest of us, we get through a couple things before we realize our own ineptitude, and then every additional checkbox feels like a bag of rocks on your head. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? You sure? Then we quickly become crushed by the ever increasing list of conversations we should have, skills we should pass on, habits we should instill, and so on and so forth. Now, biblically, What I just described, Paul says, is the point of the law of God. Not to show you how awesome you are, but to show you how far you fall short. Every day. He continues, indeed, all these liabilities, these credentials, he continues, indeed, I regard my credentials as dung. That's the fancy word for poop. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not because I have my own righteousness delivered from the law, derived from the law, but because I have a righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness. A righteousness from God that is, is in fact based on whose faithfulness? Say it out loud. Christ's faithfulness. Your righteousness is not based on your faithfulness to Christ. It's based on Christ's faithfulness to the Father. That is a key theological concept in the gospel. My aim, verse 10, is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to become like him in his death, and so, somehow, By the grace of God, actually, to attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, listen. Indeed, so pointless, so pointless are our credentials at the end of the day when we stand before the Lord in heaven that Paul says they should be compared. This is Paul, not me. This is Paul. Paul says they should be compared to presenting God with a pile of dung as your entrance papers. That's what Paul says. I'm not making that up. I'm not being crass. It's actually far worse in the Greek, okay? It's a word you can't say here. Paul says this is like me presenting this to God and saying, look what I made. This is for you. That's our credentials. But when we realize our need for God and our inability to impress him, then we come to the end of our proverbial rope and we find that we can surrender to him and in faith be found in him and receive a righteousness that is not my own in other words one derived from the law but one that was gifted to me by jesus because of his faithfulness to see it done And once we realize that salvation is given by faith and not earned by works, once we realize that we can never be enough, but that we don't have to be enough, then we find ourselves actually free to live the life he wants us to live because we no longer have the fear of failure and disappointment. Verse 12. Not that I've already attained this. That is that I'm already perfected. See, Paul's saying, I'm not, but I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have attained this Instead, I am single-minded, I forget the things that are behind me, and I reach outward for the things that are ahead. And with this, in other words, I forget all my failures, and I keep marching forward. And with this goal in mind, I strive toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let those of us who are perfect, or it says in the ESV, mature, embrace this point of view. If you think otherwise, God will reveal to you the error of your ways. Nevertheless, let us live up to the standard that we have already attained. So, having received a righteousness that comes from faith in Christ and not works, Paul refers to us as perfect, we who are perfect. We are not perfect because of our abilities. We are perfect in him because he's given us the perfection of Christ as a gift. Now listen, if you forget everything else that I say today because you're zoning out and your kids are driving you nuts... Listen to this, okay? And I really mean it. I'm going to say something controversial. But it's true. So there. You will go through your whole life never experiencing the victory over sin that you truly desire. And then you will die victorious. All of us will say, I wish I were more patient. I wish I were more kind. I wish I were more sacrificial. I wish I pursued Christ more. I wish I loved people more. You will never get the victory that you truly want in this life, but in Christ, you will die as a victorious overcomer because his victory is your victory. That is the gospel in its essence. If you are in Christ If you are being found in him, having a righteousness that comes not from your own works, but by the gift of Jesus, by his faithfulness, that's what you have. And so Paul says, because of that, we push forward and we don't give up. Paul says, let those who are perfect or mature embrace this point, meaning those of us who have been made righteous by God, let us now live for him in an epic response of thanksgiving. Because when he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see another person who dropped the ball. He sees the perfection of Christ, and now we are actually free to live. And one day we will know him fully and be fully known. And so Paul ends with this verse. And here's the point why I chose this passage. So be imitators of me, brothers. And watch carefully those who are living this way, just as you have us for an example. All right, so here's the, here's the, here's the end. <laughs> what is the most important thing I can do for my family? What is the most important thing you can do for your family? What is the most important thing you can do for the, your coworkers who you're hoping the disciple? What is the most important thing you can do for the rest of your brothers and sisters who don't know Jesus? What is the most important thing you can do in your life? If you're not paying attention, hear me, because this is the most important thing that you can do in your life. And this is it. This is what you need to model. The most important thing that I can do for my family is this reality. It is to realize my absolute desperate need for Jesus and my complete inability to live this life or the next without him and surrendering in response. That's the best thing I can do. The best thing that you can do is realize you can't do it. That's the point. That's what you need to do. That is the reality that we need to model and that our kids need to learn from us. Not a dad who has it all together, but one that doesn't and knows it. Not a dad who never sins, never makes the wrong choice, but a dad who does make the wrong choice, and he repents, and he confesses, and he asks for forgiveness. Not a dad who stands aloof and gives the illusion of whatever, but one who shows that Jesus is my only sufficiency. That's what our kids need. That's what our disciples need. That's what our churches need. We don't need more behavior modification and therapeutic deism because the reality is you will never be enough in your own capacities. You aren't a good enough person. You aren't a good enough parent. You aren't a good enough spouse and you aren't a good enough Christian and your kids will also never be enough for you. They will never be obedient enough. They will never be kind enough. They will never be thankful enough. They will never be successful enough. Their marriage will never be all that it could or should be. And all of the family structure, the family rules, the family freedom in the world won't make it happen because you can never expect the law to accomplish what only grace can do. I'm not actually mad at you guys. But the gospel says that Jesus is enough despite the reality that you are not. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't, like I said, therapeutic deism. This isn't, well, God looks at you and he says, You're enough. You're enough for me. No, that's not what he says. God looks at you and he says, I'm going to show you how I love my enemies by sending my perfect only begotten son to die in your place. And he will rescue you, throw you on his shoulder, carry you all the way back home while you kick and scream. He will make you a part of of our family. He'll put a robe on your back, a ring on your finger, and we will call you our own. And we will do this work because you can't. And so all the vicarious parenting, all the Sunday school attendance, all the algebra tutoring and extracurricular activities won't matter a lick on the day of judgment for you or your child if they are not found hidden in Christ. You need Jesus because no amount of religion will save you. You need Jesus because no amount of philanthropy will save you. You need Jesus because no amount of purity, morals, or ethics will save you. You need Jesus, and so do your kids. And anything you do following that reality, prayer, the Bible reading, good work, anything is not actually you doing at all because anything that is good is Christ at work in you. And so it's a work that flows out from the grace that you've already received, which is why Paul puts it this way. I press on to possess possess that imperfection which Christ Jesus first possessed for me. I press on to, pre- to possess that perfection that Christ Jesus possessed for me. But it is crucial to realize that this is the order In awareness of my inability to defeat sin and death and to live the life that God desires for me, that he created for me to to live. It It begins with that because God opens our eyes to our own ability, and then that leads us by the Spirit of Christ to our surrender on God's terms, not on our own. We don't sit and bargain over our surrender. We throw our hands up and our guns down, and we surrender. And that results in a desire to live life differently, despite my failures Because of God's work in me. All of this is God's work in me. But if you get that order out of whack, you will spend your whole life trying to climb to heaven. And you will teach your kids that it's all about being better and doing more. And you'll smother your kids. And you'll give them rules that actually have no real ability to save their soul. So what is the best thing that you can do? What is the best thing that you can model for your kids? A very real desperation for Jesus. You must realize your absolute desperate need for Jesus. You must realize your complete inability to live this life without him. And then, and only then, are you really ready to surrender to his kingship in your life and in your home. And then do it all again tomorrow. See, all the tools and tactics that we could teach you, and that we will, I mean, we're going to give practical things in the next coming weeks, but all of the tools and tactics we teach you, although they are good, if that's all you get are the tools and the tactics, and you miss a life of repentance and belief, you're going to miss the whole thing. And so, why don't we do this for the next few minutes? just for two or three minutes, because we're trying to be sensitive to time for two mile, because they have to open, why don't you spend a few minutes praying at your table that God would actually allow you to see your desperate need for him and that your kids would see it in you, all right?